Welcome to the Essential Church Podcast. Our goal is to strengthen and equip church and ministry leaders just like you through practical and theological discussions about some of the most pressing and important issues facing the local church today. We feature conversations with members of our team here at New Life Church in Colorado Springs, Colorado, as well as interviews with authors and thinkers from around the world. You can follow The Essential.Church on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Watch episodes on our YouTube channel and also subscribe to our podcast via iTunes and Spotify, where you'll find a full archive of previous conversations. And now, here is this week's episode of The Essential Church Podcast. Welcome to this episode of The Essential Church Podcast, an ongoing conversation about some of the most important issues facing the local church today. I'm your host, Andrew Arndt, and today I want to take you to a conversation that we had Recently at our Essential Church Learning Community, uh, several weeks back, in which Pastor Glenn, Pastor Jason, Pastor Daniel, and I talked about how all of the elements of a worship service together constitute a place of encounter. Those of us that came from Pentecostal charismatic backgrounds, sometimes what we think is that there are certain moments maybe in the service that are like designated Holy Spirit moments. And this was our effort to really recapture a total theology of the Spirit for all of the things that happen in a worship service, I think that you're really going to be helped by this one. And so without further commentary from me, here's to the conversation. So when we think about uh, what the first session, we said that services in, in some way should be gospel shaped. And this actually goes way back in the history of the church that as the followers of Jesus were gathering together as the people of God, they had even in their DNA as those who mainly, at least initially, were coming out of, uh, they were part of the Jewish movement, they were Jewish followers of Jesus, their worship was shaped by the story. They even think about the calendar that we find in the Old Testament, the times that they're going up to Jerusalem, that there's something about the way in which they worship is shaped by the story they find themselves in. And so as the early Christians were, what's that? Lift it up a little bit higher. Okay, there we go. As the early Christians were putting together their services, a lot of those sort of reflexes came into the way in which services began to be designed. And they took on historically kind of a fourfold movement that there was a recognition that what's happening in the gathering is that the people of God are being regathered back together into the presence of God. That there has been some sort of dispersion that's happened. And now they're being regathered by the Spirit in the presence of God as the people of God. And so the very first movements of the service were the regathering of the body. We think of these things as like the call to worship, maybe if you're from a formal liturgical sort of background. It is calling people. Or even what John did this morning, the first 60 seconds, yes. two minutes of the Yep. And it's something that we step in and do as leaders, but we recognize this is actually what the Spirit is doing. The Spirit, as Jesus is lifting up, is drawing all people to himself, that we're drawn back into the presence of God. And then that second movement has historically been the Word. It's been a not so much a movement of gathering, but of proclaiming, both in song and in preaching, that our singing and our preaching actually proclaim the gospel. They proclaim the truth to us about who God is and who we are. And so in this moment, we're being regathered into the spirit and then we're being reminded who God is and who we are as the people. 
There's a proclamation that happens. But then the proclamation, as we see in the Gospels, requires a response. Jesus is proclaiming the good news and people are responding. He's saying, come follow me. He's saying, repent for the kingdom of God is here. We're realizing, oh, God is present. The kingdom is being proclaimed. And then we respond. And the church said, well, where do we respond? We respond at the table. (laughs) We do this in remembrance of him. So we're continually responding to the good news by drawing to Jesus, surrendering ourselves to him, receiving his presence back into our lives. But that's not where the service ends because the service doesn't end for the church with the church just sort of sitting like at the table together. (laughs) Like, oh, it would be great if we could just stay in these moments. Instead, then the church is sent back out. The church is recommissioned back into the world as missionaries in their neighborhoods and their workplaces and their families. And so the story of the service is a story of God's life with his people, gathering them, proclaiming to them, them responding, and then them being sent back out into the world as missionaries. It's so good because it might sound like it's just technicalities, like dismissal versus sending. But I think if the people doing it understand, this isn't just the end, thank you, this is now go. Um, we would approach that moment, even that 60 seconds, a little bit differently. There's a slight variation of this that um, some scholars kind of say, you know, the Gospels, uh, the Gospels come to us from early Christian communities. Um, so they are some of the later, most, you know, later written texts of the New Testament. And so some people believe that they told the story of the life of Christ around the shape of their worship services. And so the worship services, just as the Gospels begin with the baptism of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the prayer of Jesus, the death of Jesus, uh, they believe that actually early Christian communities followed that in their service. So think about old traditional churches, baptismal font, or the basin that reminds you of your baptism. Or it, t- till this day, if you go to a formal um, baptism service at an Anglican church or whatever, baptism happens at the beginning. Of the service. So it's again mimicking the life of Christ. So this is one of the logics of it was to mimic the life of Christ. Now, what changes, and we, I alluded to this earlier, is that around the time of the Second Great Awakening with Finney, you get this threefold service shape. Now, I'm, I, I want to try to just present this without being critical and just offer it as a matter of history. Um, where the first Great Awakening genuinely seemed like a move of God, there were others who were involved in the second Great Awakening who said, if we just do the right things, we can sort of create, we can create a revival. And so, and they were very upfront up about this. Uh, in fact, it, it was called uh, Finney's New Methods, because Finney believed you could sort of conjure revival. So again, I just... Offer that. There's definitely good things that came that. Did God use it? Sure, God used it. Uh, but it's important that we know where the service shape that we use came from. It came from that. It came from a frontier revival stuff. So it's the songs, the sermon, and the altar call. It's not a bad shape, but it does make you think, what are we missing? And it does make you think, what have we... A friend of mine once asked me 15, 13 years ago, whatever. He said, when you think about the historical worship practices, ask yourself... What were they doing and why? And what have we changed and why? So we should change things, but if the why is good. If the, if the why, maybe the why is missional, so we say we're not going to sing that hymn anymore or whatever. You know, we're going to sing a new song. But it's important to at least wrestle with that question. Okay, um, who's taking this one here? Worship Service Essentials. can't remember who's got this one. 
Um, let, let's, let me just tee this one up and then we go to Ephesians. Is that right? Okay. Worship service essentials, worship tape, word and table. Let's just... Andrew, you're going to talk about the church and the spirit. Yeah, so one of the things uh, when we think about, we got it, after a little muttering. It's extra slides. It's good, it's good. One of the things that I think can happen to us sometimes when we think about mission, formation, and encounter is that we turn it into a kind of division of labor sort of thing. So what we go is, uh, we think, okay, so if encounter is like the Holy Spirit piece of the puzzle, then where does the Holy Spirit kind of fit in our worship services? And I think it's helpful just to remember that in the thinking of the church and in the New Testament, the spirit really is the whole logic of the service in the first place. So we don't just have moments for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit supersaturates the entire thing that the church is. And one of the ways that's one of the places where it's helpful to think about this um, or where it comes through really is in the Nicene Creed. So we think about the third stanza of the creed. Uh, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son with the Father and the Son. He is worshiped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We don't start a new stanza at that point. The stanza on the Holy Spirit actually continues with, we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So the impact of the triune God in the world, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, just is the existence of the church in the first place. And this has been helpful for me as a charismatic who has grown up into kind of the great historical tradition of the church, that um, our experience is not just kind of a little slot that you put in the service, but actually the church exists at all by the power of the Holy Spirit. So there are not certain charismatic elements in the service. I would contend that the whole thing just is charismatic. To be gathered at all, Jason said it, to be gathered at all is to be gathered by the Spirit. We are able to hear the word at all because the Spirit is moving upon us, opening up our ears. We come to the table and we're able to encounter the risen Christ because the Spirit is there. And so when we think about things that way, it helps us not silo the moments of our service into, okay, now we're doing mission and now we're doing formation and now we're doing encounter. Really, if the Holy Spirit is the reason for the church, then the whole thing is encounter. So good. Could you just say a tiny bit more about the significance of that the creed doesn't break from the spirit to talk about the church, but the church is talked about in the context of the spirit. What, what is that? Why does that matter? I think I said it. Yeah, right? I just okay. want you to say more because it was so good, but it was so densely packed. I mean, if what Jesus has done in his life, death, and resurrection is he has inaugurated a new humanity, then what happens by the Spirit is the Spirit brings that new humanity together. So the only way, I mean, if there had not been a church, we would, there, there's not, the, the triune God does not float above history. But the triune God makes manifest his work in history. And so the impact, that's the way that I think about it anyway with the creed is that the, I mean, that we have the church in the third stanza means that when you look for signs of the work of the triune God in the world, the impact is there is a group of people gathered around word and sacrament. And that's, I think the push point. Okay. So, so people want to say I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious or I want the presence of God, but why do I need the church? But on the slide, we're saying you can't speak of the spirit without speaking of the church. And you can't speak of the church without speaking of the spirit. So this idea here in Colorado of like, I'm in tune with the Holy Spirit. Why do I need the church? Flies in the face of 1700 years of church history that says there is no access to, not that there's no access to the spirit. There's no deep life of the spirit. We have all been baptized by the spirit into one body and we've all been given the one spirit to drink. So any authentic, I think just biblically, you could argue that you have to argue this. 
that any authentic experience of the spirit flows out of the church and leads back into the church. If it's not that, then it's some other spirit. So the person who says, I'm just being led by the spirit to not go to church anywhere right now, you would have good grounds to rebuke them. Okay. Okay, good. (laughs) Just trying to get this practical here. All right, Jason, talk about Ephesians. Yeah. So real quick on this, we talked in the first session about uh, how our services sometimes can take an overemphasis of mission or formation or encounter. Also, when we're thinking about that encounter paradigm, we can overemphasize that we only encounter the spirit in one part of the service. So in maybe in uh, some movements, the spirit is encountered in the preaching of the word. And that's where the spirit is really at work. Or it's encountered in the singing of songs. Or the spirit is encountered in this place. But we sort of break all of these things up. But that actually runs contrary to what Paul says. That in this famous passage in Ephesians 5, he says to the people of God, instead be filled with the Spirit. So this comment here, it's a command. It's an imperative. But it's in the passive voice. (laughs) It's telling you to let something be done to you. Mm. Right? So it's the way of saying, like, go get a tan. Well, you can't make yourself tan. You can only just kind of put yourself in the sun. I was born that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, as, an, as a Norwegian, I can't make myself tan. <laughs> so, but I can do things to sort of put myself in the sun's rays and hope that something might happen, yeah. right? And so Paul's saying, hey, I want you to be filled with the Spirit. And then he goes on and he tells us what that looks like. He tells us how we go about putting ourselves in places that God might fill us with the Spirit. And he follows it up in the Greek with a bunch of participles. These are the things that you should constantly be doing. Mm. That are the ways in which the command itself is expressed. So how are you being, how do you get filled? Well, you do so by speaking to each other. And you do so by singing and making music. It's singing and playing instruments. So you're speaking to one another, you're singing, and you're making music, you're playing instruments, and you're giving thanks. It's the next participle. And you're submitting to each other out of respect for Christ. That submitting to each other is part of being filled with the Spirit. The way that we're filled with the Spirit is we gather and we speak the word to each other. And then we sing together. Mm. And we give thanks together. And we submit to one another. So we encounter the Spirit actually in each of these places. In the Scripture, in song, in sacrament, at giving thanks, there is the same Greek word that the word Eucharist comes from. We give thanks at the table, and by submitting to one another, we actually encounter the Spirit through the saints, from one another, in the fellowship that's actually happening with one another, not just the things that are happening on the stage. The so Spirit is at work in all those places. Yeah, that was a tour de force, man. Yes. Two minutes of just exegetical genius. So let's take those four and go one by one through. Andrew, take us through Scripture. So let's just talk about uh, the sermon as a place of encounter. Quickly, uh, a great quote by Martin Luther said that the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. The preaching of the word of God is the word of God. And I think that we've probably all experienced that at some point in our time in the church, that there are times when, I think that when the sermon is operating the way that it should, it's not just informative, it's not just doctrinally correct, but it grips you. It impacts you. And um, so I think that there are pitfalls that we can fall into when we think about the sermon. Um, I think that one pitfall for us, one ditch that we can fall into, too much evangelical preaching, in my opinion, 
um, prizes exegetical or doctrinal correctness as kind of like that's the bar that you and it, as long as we do that then we've done our job uh, on the other side the pendulum can swing to i think too much charismatic preaching um prizes just a kind of affect or a moment and experience uh, that that's kind of the goal and i think that what we are learning at new life is that those two things are not mutually exclusive can i get some amens in the house this morning uh, jeremiah says jeremiah 23 and verse uh, 29 says is not my word like fire declares the Lord in like a hammer that breaks the rock into pieces. And so God's word doesn't float above or beyond the words of scripture. This is what we're learning, but rather God, the word, the second person of the Trinity recruits or sanctifies the words of scripture to be his instruments of speech in the here and now. So that means that that place of the sermon where we're opening up the biblical text, that's a place where God, the word is speaking through the very words of scripture. Uh, the late John Webster put it this way. I love this. He said the biblical texts are creaturely realities set apart by the triune God to serve his self presence. So think about that, that what Jesus is doing is he's picking up the words of scripture and he's also gathering up our human words as preachers and he's making them part, making them part of how he's presenting himself to the world, as the writer of Hebrews says when referring to the scripture, as the Holy Spirit says, that the Spirit speaks now through the words of scripture. Okay, so if this is true, um, I just want to say a couple things. One, exegesis, handling the text of scripture in the right way, really is crucial. Part of what you're doing as a preacher is you're trying to ascertain what the text says, but exegesis is only one part of the preparation process. And too many preachers, I think, stop at this. They just kind of put together a doctrinally correct, exegetically correct map, and then they do that. But I would contend, and I think that good preaching happens when we refuse to be satisfied with doctrinal or exegetical correctness, and we move into the critical element, which is the question, what is this text saying to these people right now? In other words, what is the Holy Spirit saying, not what did the Holy Spirit say, but what is the Spirit saying to these people now? So as a preacher, some of the questions that I am asking that kind of get me into this are, how is this word of scripture re-describing the world that we currently live in right now? How is it giving new lenses to see the world? How is it challenging our view of reality? How is it speaking to concerns and questions that I know my congregation has? Um, How is it opening up new possibilities for relating to each other and to the world around us? Questions like that, not just about ancient context, but about what's happening right here. I think as soon as we start asking those questions, we're well on our way to preaching as encounter. I'm sorry, that was too much stuff. Forgive me. You came with like three quotes, a scripture, a couple of practical tips. Um, the, the, the next one is about songs. None of us need convincing that singing can be a place of encounter, but let me just say one comment for the sake of the pushback that it surfaced at our table conversation in the last session, that this is just too emotional or it's manipulation. And there is a great fear of that. Like, oh my gosh, all of this stuff, it's just, you're just trying to pull my heartstrings and all of that. So the two things I want to say about that. One is um, art is intentionally evocative. Uh, the, the English reformer Cranmer, when he wrote the prayer book with poetry in sort of King James English, his goal was he knew that what the heart loves, the will chooses and the mind justifies. We all imagine that we're like Dr. Spock, rational creatures, but we're not. What the heart loves, we choose, and then our, we make up a reason of why we chose it and why that's the best choice ever, you know. 
but our heart was drawn to it. So part of why the arts belong in church or singing belongs in, in worship is because we are meant to help people love Jesus, not just learn about Jesus. But the second thing I want to say is that the way that the Holy Spirit works, this is why personally, you don't have to agree with me on this, but personally, I would advocate we don't use the phrase supernatural to describe the Spirit. Because supernatural implies that there's a natural world and then there's a world above it. But the Jewish view of the world is that the whole earth is full of his glory. It was Jacob waking up and saying, surely the Lord was in this place and I did not know it. The Hebrew worldview is not of natural and then supernatural. That's post-enlightenment rationalism in Europe. That didn't, that didn't come from the Hebrews. So I don't like saying supernatural because that implies that like music is natural. But supernatural, that's different than music, man. And I want to say the God who breathed his breath into human beings, the God who uses water to signify baptism and bread and wine to signify the body and the blood can also use music to provoke joy and hope and comfort and thanksgiving and all of the above. So there was a study at the University of Washington that said that when people get together in groups and sing, the brain releases the chemical called oxytocin. You're adults in the room. You know what else releases oxytocin in the room. It's when married couples do married couple things. And other, there are other moments like that. Touch, hugs, contact releases oxytocin in the brain. Isn't it interesting that in this moment of COVID where we can't hold or hug or touch one another, we can still sing? And wouldn't it make sense if someone says, well, you're not really feeling joy, you're just feeling oxytocin. And I would say, but why wouldn't the God who made you make you so that your brain rewards you when you do the very thing that God told you to do? So the psalmist said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. You better preach. Now, sacraments. So, sermons. (laughs) Sermons. Sacraments. Uh, Sermons, songs, sacraments. I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, charismatic hub of the universe, Tulsa, Jerusalem. You make pilgrimage. (laughs) So sacraments were what all the Catholics did. It was dead religion. It was rote routines. It didn't matter. And I've learned differently as I've paid attention, as I've read, and as I've watched church history. And as I've experienced it myself, I finished a book yesterday called Atomic Habits by James Clear. Anyone else? Uh, Small habits, big changes. So Highly recommended. And in this book, he cites a story of all the taxi cab drivers in London. And they did a big study on them. To become a taxi cab driver in London, it's, mass, it's a massive commitment. Phase one is you have to memorize every street in London. You have to memorize it. Phase one, you're looking at a map, you're, you're making notes, you've got a highlighter, you're writing in the margins, and you've got to get it down. But phase two is you have to walk every street in London. Under your feet. you got to get London under your feet. There's a physicality of the act. And they studied their brains. These, the, they got a scan of their brains before. And they got a scan of, scan of their brains afterwards. After they had stu- memorized and then walked all of the streets in London. And what they discovered is that the hippocampus. And I, I wrote it down here. The region of the brain associated with spatial memory became significantly larger than it was before. And it became significantly larger than all the non-taxi cab drivers whose brains they had studied. And the physicality of the act of driving the streets and then walking them bolstered the function of their brains and increased the size of their brains. Then they studied the taxi cab drivers who retired. 
and their hippocampuses went back. They grew when they were doing it and when they'd walked it. And while they were driving the streets, they retired. They, they, they're not driving anymore. Their brains atrophied. The physicality of the act matters. Sacraments are this proclamation that there's a startling physicality to the life of faith. We are not Gnostics. We are not dualists who just give me my doctrinal stuff that I can ascend to. And then, you know, just put together this little, uh, you know, framework in my mind and know all the truths about Jesus. No, Christians practice their faith. And so communion. This is my body, which is broken for you, Jesus. As often as you get together, do this for the remembrance of me. He gives them bread. He gives them wine. Why do we keep coming back to the table of the Lord? Because Jesus said that the act of faith is startlingly physical. Jesus didn't uh, sprinkle fairy dust of salvation. He hung on a cross and bled out. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So to be those who are following Jesus, the word who became flesh, is to become fleshy in all the right ways in the earth. When, when someone hands me the communion, honestly, I'm, I'm looking at Jesus. I'm, remember, I'm trying to be in that room, and somehow by the Spirit, I, I get caught up in that room with Jesus. And he hands it to me, and, and at the same time, he's doing something for me, but it's also a command of what I'm supposed to do for someone else. Do not mess with people's bodies. Right. Yeah. That's what it says. Yeah. That's what communion says. This is my body broken for you, and I'm, I'm going to give my body so that you can be saved. But don't you now walk out of this church and go abuse bodies. Yeah. Yeah. You, you can't touch anyone else. You can't hurt someone. Don't, don't strike them down. Jesus trains us in the physical act of communion by the Spirit. Something is happening over compounding decades of submitting yourself to Jesus in the physical act of worship physiologically we are changed. Our bodies, our brains, our minds, our activity in the world. Marriage. Marriage is the way that you practice, you physically practice your fidelity to Jesus. If you're married, you're practicing your fidelity to to Jesus by saying, you know what, I'm going to pour out my life for you, this one person for the rest of my life. If it kills me, it will be the right thing to do because that's what Jesus did for the world and I've given myself to you and you've given yourself to me. The sacrament of marriage matters. This is how married people practice their fidelity to Jesus. Baptism, the baptismal waters, your sins have been washed away. He doesn't just go, hey, trust me, I've taken care of it. He says, get your butt in the water. Be baptized. Come up out of the water. Jesus submitted to baptism. Jesus was not a Gnostic. The word became flesh and got in the water. And and the saints are those who practice their their life of faith physically in the earth. Anointing with oil, James 5. If if anyone's sick, call on the elders of the church. And they're going to come over and not just kind of wave a magic wand. They're going to put oil on you that someone harvested from the fields that God gave them. And they're going to lay hands on your body and you're going to be healed. Trust it. And so I just want to remind you that the sacraments are not some nice little precious mental assent to something that happened. But by the Spirit, somehow, because Jesus told us to do it and we obey as we participate in the sacraments, we are changed spiritually, we are changed emotionally, we are changed physiologically, and our activity in the world changes because of it. Sacraments matter. The other piece then to this for Paul is the saints. That not only is our faith essentially physical, it's essentially communal. This is one of the great, I think, dangers of what we've seen with all of the online explosion. The sense that it does not matter if I show up. 
And Paul said, no, no, it actually does. Because for us to be filled with the Spirit, we're filled with the Spirit communally. We're filled with the Spirit in relationship to one another. The Spirit comes to us through other people. That when we show up in service, we're bringing the gifts and graces God has given us for other people that they might encounter Jesus through us and we might encounter Jesus through them. I grew up in a non-Christian home or a nominally Christian home and my family has slowly been over the last 25 years becoming more open to having conversations with the person they call Padre and being open to like coming to church. And so a couple years ago, my, one of my brothers was here visiting and they came to us to New Life Downtown on a Sunday morning and we were emphasizing singing and Glenn preached and it was an incredible sermon and we came to the table and my brother's weeping during the service. My brother, I think this is the first time I've ever seen him cry and I talked to him after the service and I was like, man, what was, what was happening there. And he starts talking about Marvin. Marvin is a homeless guy in our congregation. And he met Marvin on the way in. He knew a little bit about Marvin's story. And he heard Marvin singing. (laughs) And he heard Marvin praising God. And he heard Marvin giving thanks. And he thought, I have so much more than him. And yet I cannot give thanks to God. That's the part that moved him. That, and this is so important even for us that are leading teams to say to the people that are doing our welcome team, you are welcoming the saints and they are encountering Jesus as you welcome yes. them. Yes. And as Off you the welcome platform. them, you are encountering Christ who comes to you in the poor and the widow and the marginalized and those who are coming. Suddenly you see Jesus in the least and the lost and they see Jesus in you. So there's something about our services that should also create spaces for the saints to engage one another. If it's coming forward for prayer, if it's coming for communion and having someone, there's a guy in our congregation named Bob. And Bob slows our communion down, lying down so much because Bob grabs that wafer and he looks everyone in the eye. The body of Christ broken for you. (laughs) And he goes that, but he's looking in the eye and you see people weep as this other member of the body looks him in the eye and serves them communion. There are those spaces in greeting time and else that the Spirit's at work. It's not just in what we're doing. It's in what all the body is doing together that the Spirit fills us. So good. It is our tendency to overemphasize the activity of the platform. But the Spirit's mode of encounter is everywhere in the church. 